Lawyers switched jobs significantly less in the early 1980s, which was a good thing because it took a lot more work for recruiters to find them and contact them. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, we're discussing executive search work and how much it has changed over the years. My guests today are Valerie Fontaine, a principal of Los Angeles Seltzer Fontaine, and Marina Siris, who is based in New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, tell me about cold calling candidates pre-internet, because you had to get <laughs> through the fortress, right? Um, I started in this business in 1986. And the way that we got candidates, Martindale Cobble came out once a year in October. And what we would do is divide the list of new entries and we, I was with a larger recruiting firm and we would call call every single person to find out because associates were not they You got the year that they were born, the year that they were admitted to the bar, the firm that they were with. So we had to call them and find out what specialty they were at working in. So, OK, the associates bios were not listed in Martindale Hubble. So you had to call every one, every one of them. How many calls was that like a day? Oh, hundreds sometimes. If you, could, if you could get them on the phone. And back then they did answer their telephone. The secretaries answered the telephones. We had to get through the secretaries. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you had to, to go through that hurdle first. But if you did get them on the phone, they were chatty. They would tell you about themselves. They would tell you about what specialized in and languages that they spoke, all of that. Did you keep a list of the people you'd called the year before so you didn't call them again? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So you were yes. calling all first year associates. Ma Hub. Remember Ma Hub? Ma Hub. <laughs> yes. And maybe we should explain for the younger people uh, what Mar... <laughs> Do you want to explain? I don't want yeah. to say you want to explain what Martindale <laughs> Hubble is because it kind of hurts my heart. But Valerie, yes. would you like to yes, I <laughs> take that? I actually started in legal recruiting in November of 1981. So I might not be older than you, Marina, but I've been doing this longer. This is my 40th year this yes, month absolutely. in recruiting. Martindale Hubble was a set of very fat directories with very thin pages. Think of an old-fashioned big dictionary. And you would take the, uh, the volume for your state and put it on your lap and open it up and start calling. Um, and then you would make a Rolodex card or an index card that would then be filed so that we would keep track of who did what. It would go under the litigators, under the labor and employment people, under the corporate people, whatever. And so that is how you would keep track of folks. And like Marina said, we had to find out what they did and we had to find out a lot about them. Um, but first we had to get through their secretaries, which was a feat in itself because um, the assistant's job was to, you know, keep out people like us. Um, and I, I had a colleague 
um, who did some very inventive things. Some people would use different names, so they wouldn't keep calling the same firm <laughs> yes. using the same name, you know. And I could, <laughs> I never did that because I couldn't keep it straight. I just used my own name, um, so that meant I had to jump around from firm to firm. I couldn't keep calling the same one one after another. But also, you know, I, this one colleague was very inventive, and she would call and say, "Oh well." Um, Tell the whoever it was him it's uh it's the doctor's office, and then or if it was even more difficult to get through, she goes, "Well, just tell him I have the results of the test he was waiting for and I would be shocked and appalled that she would do that, but it would get people on the phone. <laughs> Well, so I'm curious, at some point when you called us, someone had a really good secretary, they're like, yes, I know it's Valerie with an E. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Would you also try to make friends with the secretaries? Sometimes, but their mm. job was to keep us out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious, what if you called somebody and you chatted them up and it turned out, oh, well, I went to an unranked law school or, you know, I didn't past a bar until my fifth try would you just be like okay thanks and move on or i mean because you you didn't know because martindale hubble didn't have well they they did have the admission right. okay right but they didn't and, say where they went to law yes, school they did. they did yeah oh it did say they went to law school okay they gave you a number of the law school a number of the undergrad school and a number of the law school and we had to look that up okay all right so. And I'm curious if, say, you found somebody like who was a Harvard grad, would you say, who else was in your class? We always do that. No. <laughs> you did? Oh, I didn't do no. that. No, <laughs> you always ask, who do you know? Who would you recommend? Who do you think I should call? And then you can, then when you got a, a, a secretary and an associate or an assistant, you could say, oh, Joe Schmo told me to, to give so and so a call. And that always helped. Oh, that's a good trick, Valerie. <laughs> well, it's about time we learned some new tricks, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes. say I was a third year associate in 1987 and I wanted to switch firms. What should I do? Call me. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And what would, would you tell me? We would leave our number. But then what? How did the process work? Okay. Well, we always would want to get a resume and getting a resume is a whole different seen than it is today because someone would have to write up a resume and then they would have to mail it to us. First, they would have to get it. They would have to get it typed up. They would take it to a place like a Kinko's or something. I can't even remember when Kinko's opened. They would have to get it printed. Heaven forbid there'd be a typo in it. They'd have to get more printed. They'd have to mail a number of the resumes to us because the, we would then have a cover letter typed up, which then had to be mailed to the law firm. This is before fax machines, don't forget. So a phone call would lead to getting a resume from the candidate in about two to three weeks and get it to the law firm in two to three or more weeks. Not like today, where you can call somebody up, get it zapped right to you, you get it right to the law firm. You can do that within minutes. It would take weeks and lots of stamps and trips to the post office or a messenger. You probably had a lot of candidates then, too, who couldn't type. Well, I couldn't type. Yeah, that's a problem. You have to get somebody oh. who could type. I can now, okay. I can now sort a keyboard, but... Uh, okay. <laughs> yes. You to learn how to type on purpose. So when, they, when you would apply for a job, they always asked you, how many words do you type? 
And my answer was, I don't None. type because I did not want to be a secretary or a nurse. Yeah. I wanted to be yeah. more than that. What so. about for resume design? Because people, you couldn't really design, you, I guess you could design your own resume, but it's not like it is now. Did you guys offer those services with your businesses? Oh, we would do resumes, absolutely. But we needed to get all of the material from them. So when they first had to send us their version of it, and then we revised it into a format that we had. How did you find out then what the firms wanted? And I wouldn't imagine maybe that hasn't changed much in terms of what the firms are interested in and what they need at the moment. Phone calls. You would call them. And getting very friendly with the recruiters at the various firms, taking them to lunch and everything. And then they would uh, respond to your calls and tell you about what they were looking for, what openings they had. It isn't like now where they, you cannot get a recruiter on the phone unless you have a candidate that they're interviewing. Really? So it's very difficult. They, you do need to build a relationship. But back then it was easier than it is today. Why do you think that is? There wasn't as much lateral movement, so they weren't they weren't as busy. In fact, quite often the recruiting person was some partner's secretary. Yes, is part of it too because they don't want to pay a fee; they'd rather just handle it internally. Oh no, they love paying. It was easy to pay a fee. It was easy to get. The, it was easy if they had the right candidate. They messengered the check to us in New York on the day right. that the candidate yes. started. We did not have fee agreements. We did not have any of the stuff. We have five and six page fee agreements. But right we now. always had fee agreements. We did. But it, they were Chris, one page. They were one page. <laughs> the, but you have to remember, Stephanie, that there wasn't as much lateral movement at all. When I started recruiting, right. it was really very new that associates would move. Partners weren't moving. It was just associates. Uh, so um, it was a new thing altogether. Correct. I think legal recruiting really started in the very late 70s, and I started doing this in 1981. So there just wasn't a lot of lateral movement. What would happen was lawyers would join a law firm out of school. They would wait, be there, say, eight years, six to eight years, make partner. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't make partner, they were out. But generally speaking, they made partners and they stayed there until they either retired or died at their desks. They, there wasn't a lot of movement. What are some things that are acceptable now for mid-level and senior associate candidates that maybe wouldn't have been acceptable, excuse me, that wouldn't have been acceptable in the 1980s? And I'm thinking in my mind of that question that now probably a lot of things are acceptable in part because people need bodies. But say in the past, like two years, what would you say is acceptable now that the firms would have been no? back in the 80s? Just having had more than one job uh, in the 80s, making a move at all was quite a surprise. And so um, having a couple of previous jobs was quite suspect. Also taking time off um, for any reason and wanting to come back was quite suspect. There was something that they call the two-year plan. So if you sent them a resume where they're, you know, for a fifth year associate who's already made two moves and looking again, you know, it was anathema. You just didn't do that. Um, we also used to really overanalyze the resume before we sent it out. Whereas now, if you get a corporate associate, they could have had three jobs in five years and 
you will get two offers. A mid-level associate is golden. And the other thing that's interesting is that the candidates don't hesitate to say, I want a signing bonus. Right. (laughs) Because my friend just moved and got a $100,000 signing bonus as a seventh-year associate. And that just didn't happen. It never happened before. Well, do you find with the way the market is now, and it is very, very good, but also is it putting some people's expectations just out of whack? Because they hear that their friend got a $100,000 signing bonus, but they're not their friend. Yes. Can they? Depends on if they have the right credentials. They can get it. And we also don't hesitate to ask a firm if they are offering a signing bonus for this. Well, I'm curious because you said few people moved and you certainly didn't want someone who had been at two or three firms. Say you had like, did they have six-year associates in the 80s or no? Okay. Say you're a six-year associate and you're looking for another job and everybody knows that's about the year you get considered for partner and you probably didn't get it. How did you place that person? Or they just went, like maybe instead of a top 10 firm, they started looking around for a top 20 firm. Well, they would look at the top 200 right. firm. <laughs> right. They uh, would move right. down. Unless the firm had a particular need, you know, in that particular area. Exactly. One of the things I wanted to talk about, Stephanie, that we haven't talked about is the fact that um, the associates did not know so much about other firms other than the one where they were from or at because people didn't move, number one, but also because there were not websites. So there was no way for them to learn about the firms other than from us. And we'd have to educate from them. the recruiters. Absolutely. Right. And so one of the things that we as recruiters were constantly doing, we're trying to get the law firms to write their own resumes to um, put together. I mean, there was there was Martindale Hubble that might have a list of their practice areas and a list of their partners, but to actually write a firm resume talking more about what their practice is, the sort of thing you now see on websites. And then we would have the firms would type those up, print them up, mail them to us. And then we would then, we had a printing service on Messenger that would come every week that would come to us and pick up copies of those the firm resumes that we use the most and make multiple copies and bring them back to us so we could hand them to our candidates, our prospects, or mail them. We would put together these packages of, of firm resumes that we literally mail to the associates. This was after we've already waited a couple of weeks for a resume. <laughs> mail them to the associates for them to consider whether they would be interested in applying to those firms. So, you know, you're asking why could we get the recruiting uh, people on the phone? It's because everything moves so much more slowly then, you know, and there was just... It moved more slowly and there was a smaller volume. I mean, the, 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 um, the amount of things that I do in a day here now, I would, it would take me a month to do before computers and before email. A lot of firms would have cocktail parties for recruiters. And the partners would be there, seniors, not senior associates, cart counsel. And most of the the purpose was to actually pump us for information from other firms about other firms, what their competitors were doing, was it you know their recruiting practices, their practice areas. Um, so, or they would even call if you placed 
you know, if you made some placements in one firm, the partners felt very comfortable to call up and say, tell us about, yay, you know, XY firm. So we were a source, not only for the candidates, but also for the partners. Uh, but the cocktail parties were a very um, frequent event. Well, we called them the dog and pony shows. And that's how <laughs> we, we got to know, that's how we got to know all the other recruiters in town too, because they would invite us all yes. in and they would also show off their partners. And that was another way we got to know them uh, and because they wanted to sell their firms. Firms used to do that before the pandemic, but certainly um, not as frequently. It was just that was sort of an add on to what we could get on the um, websites and that sort of thing. But in in the old days, that was just a very important way for the firms to introduce themselves to search firms and to find out more about what was going on in the legal community altogether. And taking a legal recruited to lunch was was the best way to learn about what they were doing, what they were planning, what the strategy was about the growth of a practice area. So we did that on a regular basis. Well, do you feel like as it becomes more safe to be out and about with people um, and the pandemic dies down and more people are vaccinated, are we going to go back to that time a little bit? Or do you think now that we can do so much remotely, we can find out so much stuff online, are we going to, is, is your business going to stay in many ways online with things you used to do in person? I think that a lot of it is going to stay online. I mean, one of the things that we've been able to do uh, remotely is we do Zoom or, or virtual uh, meetings with our clients because we still like to do face-to-face -face meetings, but they're face-to-face -face via Zoom. Yes. And we get, you know, practice leaders and partners from all across the country or, you know, even around the world if necessary on that Zoom call. And we can, you know, talk to a whole bunch of them all at once. And it's... Um, it's been wonderful, actually, and I think that that is going to continue. Well, now we see so many openings, uh, opportunities at law firms where they say, you know, this could be a remote position from anywhere in the United States. I just made a placement on Friday with uh, a woman who is going to be working remotely from Maui with an L L.A. firm. From, from Maui. Maui. She <laughs> nice. lives in Hawaii and is working for a Hawaiian firm. And she wants to work with a mainland firm. She started at a mainland firm and moved to, to Maui a number of years ago. And uh, so she's gonna, she wants to stay in Maui, but she wants to do mainland law. And that's going to happen. It's a different world. Yes. So what percentage of your associate placements would you say during the pandemic, they haven't been in the office? Most of them. Uh, high percentage. Yeah, most of them. <laughs> like 90? Oh, I'd say. Yes. Probably. Probably. I placed a um, very senior M&A lawyer with a firm after one interview on Zoom. He met with two partners and they called at the end of the day to say, we really want to get to know him better. Would he consider joining us as a contract attorney for, for a time? So it, is a, it was a firm that he was very interested in. And three months later, he, they hired him two weeks later because he was, had his own practice at the time. And two weeks later, they, he's, they um, set him up where he does the work remotely. He works on 
unbelievable major deals, especially with the Asia partners. And it was three months later that he went into the office in New York City. He lives in New York. And he met the partner who hired him, the head of the practice, three months later. And he said it was kind of eerie to walk down the hallways of a major firm and you see maybe three doors open, maybe not. (laughs) And it was meeting in the office so he could see the offices and then go to lunch. But prior to that, he was working for them for a very high rate at Remotely. I actually had a situation with a, a partner who had an offer from a firm. He had not met anybody in person at all. He wanted to see the L.A. office where he would eventually someday be. Um, he asked if he could go in and the um, managing partner of the L.A. office said, I'd be happy to to meet him. But this was during lockdown. Uh, the general counsel of the firm said, nope cannot go in. No. So the managing partner of Los Angeles walked around with his iPad and showed him all of the, this is here and this is there and gave him a virtual tour of the office. So, I mean, it's, people have been very creative um, with how they've been interviewing and doing things. Based on your experiences, I mean, once things start to open up and it's more common, we we keep hearing that firms want people to go back to the office, but they can't really demand it right now because the talent doesn't want to. But is this just going to be that the world is, is you don't, can you, I guess my question is, is do you think for lawyers in private firms, can you continue, do you think, to keep on working from home or there's also issues that maybe you won't be taken as seriously? if you're not working from home, or you're going to miss out on opportunities if you're not taking from home, working from home, rather. I think the world is going to be hybrid. Um, It's going to be very hard to get associates to come into the office. I mean, we're actually doing some in-house searches that are very attractive, and candidates are turning it down because the um, company wants to have their attorneys in the office five days a week. And people are saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so that's that's difficult. I'm actually right now working with a partner with a big book of business. He wants to join a firm, but he wants to make sure that they're in the office and his associates will be in the office. And other law firms are saying, that's not what we're doing. We are not requiring that of our <laughs> associates. So here is the candidate wants the people in the office But the law firm itself says, we're not demanding that. And that's becoming a real problem. So, yes, there are issues about people not, you know, being in the office. And, yes, there are opportunities and things that sort of happen organically that aren't happening because they're not running into each other in the office. But also a lot of people see the real advantages of it. And it all depends, I think, on the firm itself, the practice and the personalities involved. I think a lot of the not going into the office is driven by associates. Many of them have young families. It's great to work from home because they can get their work done in the evening. And, you know, they can go to the soccer game in the afternoon after school and see their child play. But I think uh, it is going to, the, the day to go back in is just being stretched further and further. It was supposed to be after Labor Day in New York. And then it was the end of October. And then now it's January for most of them. But they still have not say we demand 100% presence in, in office. What I am hearing 
is that um, some of the uh, options are to have certain practice groups in on certain days so that they see each other. Um, so that not everybody's in all the time and they're not required to be in all the time, but there are times where teams assemble and are there together. I think this, the ones who are going to suffer are the juniors, the, the newbies, because their training is going to be very difficult. So, you know, discussions that we have with partners at, at firms, they have a concern about it also. You know, it's fine to be on a Zoom call with a team, but it's different than being in a Zoom call, in a co- I mean, being in a conference room, speaking with everyone. Well, do you think in-person training might be beneficial to your resume in a couple of years if you're a baby lawyer? It may be. <laughs> it may be. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how uh, partner movement and general counsel placements have changed, as well as more on the current job market, because that is fascinating and unbelievable. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple. And we're back. This is Stephanie Francis Ward. And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm talking about executive search work with lawyer placements and the changes that the work has gone through over the years. Joining me are Valerie Fontaine and Marina Ceres. So we talked about associates for the last segment. If a partner left his or her firm in the mid-1980s to go to another firm, Was that eyebrow raising? And people were like, well, what in the heck happened there? Yes, (laughs) it was. It was definitely eyebrow raising. I, um, as I said earlier, I started recruiting in 1981 and partners weren't moving at all. I think that things, two major things happened. One was the advent of the American Lawyer magazine where um, there was 
a lot of uh, transparency with regard to uh, law firm finances, which had been completely a black box previously. And so other lawyers were looking around and their eyes were opened as to what some of their competitors were earning elsewhere. That was number one. But number two, a big thing that happened was when some law firms blew up. And I think the earliest and most uh, shocking to the industry, because it was, I think, the first big firm to fall apart, was Kaplan Livingston. And when that happened, and there were some really terrific lawyers with major books of business on the street, they had to go somewhere. And it turned out that it was a scramble for them. And that may have been Marina before you got in the business. I'm not sure. I don't remember the year. With me, it was Finley Cumble. Yes, it was Finley Cumble, because that was the <laughs> next one. Finley Cumble. That was the next one. And when that, they fell apart, and there were a lot of um, partners and groups of partners who were scrambling to look, and, they, and nationally. Kaplan Livingston was in New York, but when when Finley Cumble crumbled, then that was all around. And so I think that those two things really sort of opened the door for partner movement. Yes. And it was also the getting out of lockstep for a lot of firms and paying each, you know, what you kill kind of a thing. If you brought in a multi-million, if you had a multi-million dollar practice, but you were a, you know, only 10 years and 10 year partner, you had to wait a long time to really benefit from, from bringing in that much business because the firm had lockstep partner compensation. And when they started changing that, and there was a lot more movement. I'm curious. So when one of the AMLA charts came out about lawyers and money, would you guys see an uptick in calls? Because they might read in AMLA, oh, well, I'm not at the median. Oh, there was, it was always a big thing when the, when the new charts came out every year. It still is, actually. We always, the firms still are is. still jockeying for position. Um, but yeah, so then you, you take a look at, for recruiters, you take a look at the firms where if the profits for partner fell and look at the firms where profits for partner increased. And that sort of gave you an idea of where your recruiting targets might be and where your, um, you know, acquisition targets might be. So yes, it's, and people would always be looking at them and reading them and either being happy or very sad. And yes, it did make a difference with regard to the number of calls you got. And most of that was in the U.S. How did you determine back then, and maybe it's still difficult, if the partner actually had the business, he or she said they did? Because I mean, frankly, I think it seems like some firms are still not so great at uh, determining that. And sometimes with the business, it's fake it till you make it. But how did you, I mean, pre-internet, because you couldn't, you couldn't look up on Pacer and see like what cases this person was first chair on, for instance, or you couldn't, I guess you could look at the deal columns in the legal publications, but how did you determine if someone's book of business was actually what they said it was? One of the things before the new laws about asking about compensation, you could ask what the compensation was. And if and and the law firms actually asked the candidates that they were serious about for copies of their tax returns. Yes. And if they were indeed getting paid a certain number, that lets you know 
whether there was business to back that up. And if they say they had a multi-million dollar book of business, but they were making 300000 something did not add up. <laughs> um, so now you have to, and you did that, but I think now you have to be even more careful to ask questions like, how long have you been representing this client? Who do you know there? What kind of work do you get about right. from them? Do other lawyers in your firm work um, for and the this same, client? The same client. Yes, Right. So you have to delve into the relationships that these partners have with their clients. And there, you know, you can only ask those questions and rely on the answers they give you. But also, um, and one of the things some firms did, and it's raised some eyebrows, is they would call some of the larger clients. You can't say, hey, are you going to bring the work with us? But you can just say, tell me what do you think about this lawyer? And mm-hmm. so they were calling under the guise of checking references. Yes. And um, they would get some information from some of the bigger clients themselves about what they thought about that lawyer. And that would let Straight you know. Straight from the client. Yes. yes. What kind of relationship they had and, and how likely it might be it would continue. They also would arrange dinners with the perspective a partner from the perspective firm and the client and you know it was just a get to know kind of a thing but there was a lot of you know you were able to find out the one thing that also if you built a relationship with a partner and you ask them about their business they love to tell you all about it you know what kind of deals but it may not be true (laughs) yes of course there's always that and my cousins who were you know one was a banker, the other one was a partner at a big eight firm, could not understand how you could get a stranger on the phone and he'll tell you how much he was making, how many clients, what kind of business he brought in. And it was easy. And that's what, you know, he said here, it's just not done. <laughs> but, but they would tell you all about it. Right. It's amazing. It was always amazing to us. But mm-hmm. the thing is, some recruiters have the ability to engage candidates and, and uh, engender that kind of trust and respect. And you and you get that information right away. And some recruiters can't get anything and out of candidates and they don't stay in the business very long. So, you know, it's it's just the ability to um, create rapport, establish rapport very early on. I mean, we make cold calls and, you know, we we ask fairly personal questions. Yes. And we used to ask them what, what kind of money they make. Here in California, we can say, what are your... Um, compensation expectations. Mm-hmm. And we do that now, yes. Yes, and, and we can still ask that. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, I'd like to make whatever it is. And other times they'll say, oh, well, I make, and they'll tell me. And so I have to write down very quickly, so-and-so volunteer that they make such and such you know, amount of money um, because it's, you, know, it's, you have to be very careful about it. Uh, but you know, compensation... Uh, expectations and what they're currently making really give you a very good clue about what they're worth to their firm Mm -hmm. and what they're worth to their current firm has a lot to do with what they bring in. And we also advise them that the one thing they cannot do are ask their counsel or the contract partner that works on their practice or the associates. They cannot invite them to join them when he leaves unless until he's out the door. And that is very important because there have been lawsuits. Uh, firms have sued partners who have left. 
because they, they did poach the firm before they left. I have the impression that usually when a partner is leaving a law firm, it's because he or she feels that they're not getting a fair shake. I mean, would you agree with that and say that has not changed over the years you've been doing this? There are a number of reasons why people leave. And um, sometimes a client conflict arises. Uh, sometimes they are not in agreement with the direction, management direction of the firm. They're either the firm's opening up too many offices or not opening up enough offices or, you know, not giving them the kind of support in terms of associates they need. Um, there are a lot of different reasons. It's not just money, but money's a big one. Money is probably number one, but there's also the depth of the platform where they're going of the practice where they're going. Also the opportunity to head up that practice. If they have enough business, they could go in on a, on a you know, very prominent role. So there's a lot of that. And of course, if you're in your mid forties and you have a multi-million dollar business, uh, you're very attractive to many firms because they wanna have you there for a number of years. We have one client now that really hasn't done very much about succession and in trying to recruit for them, because the heads of the practice are one retired, the other one's about to retire, uh, it's very difficult to recruit for them because there is no real head of the practice that's left behind. So there's a lot of planning, strategy, all of that to be done, and then not have to be concerned if retirement comes in the way or any other issue comes in the way and they have to, to leave. I would imagine that back when you guys both started, there was recruitment for service partners, but I have the impression that that has really died out. Is that correct? I don't think there's ever been a huge Practice, uh, recruitment call for service partners. Okay, <laughs> because <All right. laughs> as one of our one as one partner told us at a Nalsk, um conference, I think this was the one in New Orleans. One of the partners said to us, to us recruiters, "Look, we don't need you to bring us smart lawyers and yeah, and good lawyers. We expect." All of your candidates are going to be that. What we want you to bring us are good clients. What we're really recruiting are the clients, not mm -hmm. the, the lawyers. And that was an interesting um, com you know, comment because he's like, I assume they're good lawyers. And of course, if they're not good lawyers, they won't have a good client base. But what the, he said, what well, we really want the clients. And I thought he was putting it very boldly and being very very uh, clear about it. And it's something I, that definitely stuck in my head. It, it took me a second to understand. Yeah, but yeah, that is fascinating. Back in the 80s, they used to say those who get and those who do, because there were the partners that would bring the business in and there were plenty of partners that could work on their, on their, on their clients. But it was a special art to get someone who really was very good at developing business. Right. Well, I heard the minders, grinders, and binders. The, there were those two. Right, right, right. So it's like grinders were the doers and, and they weren't, you know, worker bees are, have never been as valued, unfortunately, and they're necessary. To be a someone that the firms are interested in as a lateral partner now on this market, what size does your book need to be 
in this market, do you think? And has it gone up or down? Depends on the firms. Yeah, depends on the firm, depends on how profitable the work is. Um, you know, there's different numbers for different practice areas and also different economic models at different law firms. So while a partner can be extremely profitable at one firm, that partner, same partner may not be as profitable at another. So profitability is actually the key, not necessarily the size because somebody might have a 5 million book of business, but it takes a lot of lawyers at low rates to, to generate it. That's not profitable. You want somebody who has a $5 million book of business that is done by one or two people. Then you've got a profitable practice. Um, so that's, that's what's very important. One of the things we haven't talked about that's really changed is way back when there were partners and associates and that's it. Maybe there was a senior counsel or of counsel and that was somebody who was really sort of semi-retired. Now you've got all these different slices and dices of different kinds of partners. Are they equity partners, non-equity partners? Are they of counsel? And what does that mean? It means something different in every single firm. There are different layers of associates. There's all yes. different ways now um, to structure a law firm. And um, so that's made things a little more complicated uh, because people are sometimes moving for a different title. They really want, they're not going to be able to change title and get up to the next tier in their current firm. And they want to, you know, get equity or they know they're never going to move into the partner tier at all at their current firm. And they may want to go somebody else, somewhere else to get there. Mm -hmm. Could you move from like a staff lawyer position to an associate track job or partner track rather? You can these days, depending on what it is you're doing. Ah, yeah, it depends on the area of practice. If you're an intellectual property practice, if you have a science background, if you have all of that, the demand for the book of business is lower, first of all. But there are a lot of practice areas that benefit from an intellectual property department. So one of the things that also, I'm jumping around, that partners, candidates ask for is they want to meet their marketing department at the prospective firm or their business development department. <laughs> they don't want to just go in blind. They really want to see what the firm offers and how his practice will benefit from it. Right. Or what kind of budget they're going to get. And they want to hear from other laterals what their experience has been in terms of integrating and expanding their book of business. And that's another way that firms can compete. Um, one of the things I wanted to say about these um, equity and non-equity and positions is now there is sort of a, a tier and a place for lawyers who are not the biz, big business developers, and that's in the non-equity tier. Uh, but the recruiting, the recruiting is much less active there unless sometimes they go along with an equity partner where you've got sort of the marquee partner who has then a group that helps to service the book that's moving. And in that group, there is like the first lieutenant who might be a non-equity partner and then several associates. And again, as Marina said, that equity partner cannot recruit the group before he or she gives notice to the firm. But as a practical manner, once that partner has given notice to the firm, the group will move because that's all the work they're doing. I mean, the, yes. there's no, there's not going to be work left for them at their current firm if they don't go with the partner that's moving. Hmm. 
And firms do everything possible to hold on to those clients and had not have them leave with the partner. Has that changed over the years or not? Maybe people- Not much. Will. Has that changed? No. No. All, it's all the same. It comes just, down to I money. would say just everything is faster and more cutthroat these days. Okay. I'm curious, and this, I guess this would be a pandemic-related question. Instinctively knowing if someone is probably a right fit, has that changed over the years? Is it all the same? And is it the same in person when you're meeting them at a restaurant as it might be on Zoom when you're seeing them on a screen? Well, we always try to meet our candidates and our clients. Made every effort to do that. The pandemic has really played havoc on my part. So we had, we were placing a partner who had not really met any other, any partner from the prospective firm in person. So he really wanted to meet someone. So he and the managing partner met in Bryan Park in New York City and sat on a park bench six feet apart and chatted away. He didn't even go into the office, but he did make the move. Yeah, we've been having people meet at, you know, Starbucks outside. Outside. (laughs) That sort of thing. Um, We make sure we meet our candidates one way or another and our clients. And that's why we've been doing a lot of Zooming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And they and our candidates and clients have been Zooming with each other. I do agree that it takes, you learn a lot more, a lot more quickly in person than over a Zoom, but you learn more over a Zoom than you do from a telephone call. So, you know, you just try to to get as much information as you can. Part of what we do as recruiters is we are the human touch and we are expected to match not just, you know, the credentials, but also the chemistry. And there are certain personalities and certain kind of people that work better at one firm than another. I mean, we've known sometimes we've met somebody and we said, oh, that's an XYZ firm person. That is that kind of a person. Or you know what? he or she is just not going to fit at this firm. And there's all sorts of intangibles that go into that. It's not just, you know, where have they practice? What kind of law do they practice? Where do they go to school? You know, sometimes this is interesting as, um, are there a lot of people in that branch of the military where this candidate had been in that branch of the military? Um, I made a placement where we opened up the LA office or a firm where our candidate had been a former Marine and as it turned out, the partners at the law firm back east, a lot of them are Marines. Well, there's a lot that goes into that personality type, mm-hmm. and that made a that made a perfect match, um, you know. And he may not have been the perfect match for a different firm. So, you know, we we look at a lot of different things when we try to make a match. So, last and final question, quickly, for both of you. Where are the jobs going to be for 2022? It sounds like everywhere. (laughs) Geographically or practice areas? Practice areas. (laughs) Practice areas. M&A, IP. (laughs) Private equity. Private equity, funds, any kind of investment funds. Yes. In, In California, we're seeing a lot of litigation and a lot of labor and employment those as well. Labor employment is a big, especially now with the mandates, it's going to be big. Right. 
And California has always sort of been hot for labor and employment because California is its own country when it comes <laughs> to la- labor laws. I mean, in, in just the state, we are very employee friendly. And so some national firms and national corporations want to make sure they have employment lawyers that know California law because they figure if you could do it, in Cal- if you can practice employment law in California, you can practice it anywhere. <laughs> so um, they want to make sure that they have somebody here to handle it. And we're just dying looking for those. So litigators and employment lawyers, as well as the, the corporate folk. All right. That's everything I have for both of you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. That was very nice. Thank you. It was fun. It was. Yeah. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.